And now, the Blaze Radio Network presents 40 Acres and a Fool. Here's your host, Cam Edwards. Greetings from the near frontier. Thank you for tuning in to another special edition of 40 Acres and a Fool, another past tense current events edition of 40 Acres and a Fool. The current event this week... Uh, Virginia Governor Ralph Northam refusing to uh, step down as my governor uh, after a yearbook photo uh, from his Eastern Virginia Medical School appeared online. Uh, His yearbook page features a photo of an individual in blackface, another individual in a Klan hood. And when this story first broke... Uh, On uh, Friday afternoon, Ralph Northam originally issued a statement saying that he was uh, apologizing for the for the picture for for the picture that that showed him right in this awful costume. And then the next day, uh, Ralph Northam comes out and says, you know, I've been thinking about it. And uh, yeah, I don't think that's me after all. Because I remember when I was in blackface and I was dressed like Michael Jackson, uh, this wasn't uh, this wasn't me. This, this particular blackface wasn't me, and, and and it's not me in the Klan hood either. Uh, so I'm not stepping down. Now, as I record this podcast, uh, Ralph Northam is continuing to say that he is not stepping down, uh, despite uh, both senators from Virginia, several members of Congress, the Black Legislative Caucus, presidential candidates uh, on the Democratic side, and others all saying Ralph. You need to step down. Uh, you have, in fact, wrecked it. But uh, Ralph says no. He wants to uh, fight for his honor. And I, 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 I look, I, I don't begrudge somebody wanting to defend their honor. Uh, and it, I, I do have to say that, honestly, um, I think Ralph Northam's comments uh, about abortion and, and, and even abortion uh, after a child has been born, which is infanticide, um, I think that those are, to me anyway, more disqualifying factors to be governor than what he did 34 years ago. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the world that we live in. And it should be noted that even 34 years ago, in 1984, I guess 35 years ago now, in 1984, when Ralph Northam uh, allegedly dressed up in blackface, either there at the medical school or we know later that year in San Antonio at a, a dance contest. Here's the thing. Um, it was 1984. It wasn't 1934. Amos and Andy wasn't on TV. You did know better. You should have known better. But I didn't live in Virginia in the 80s. I, I lived in Oklahoma in the 1980s. Uh, and while Oklahoma was in the South, and while Oklahoma, uh, before I was born, did have its Jim Crow laws, I have to say that um, growing up in the 80s, I was 10 uh, in 1984. The, A, the idea of, of wearing blackface never would have crossed my mind. Um, B, we had gone in a literally a generation uh, in Oklahoma from segregation to not just integration, but but a generation that grew up not knowing any different. Right. I mean, that was just the norm for us. But the the past tense part of this story. So there's the current events part. We, we, we've set this up and I want to go back now. I want to go to past tense, particularly past tense in Virginia. 
Because a couple of weeks ago, I ran across a book at a uh, used bookstore in Richmond, Virginia, that is remarkable, absolutely remarkable. Um, It's a book that Martin Luther King Jr. actually called one of the most eloquent and captivating documents that has emerged from the Southern situation. Uh, The New Yorker, when it came out, called it candid, absorbing, charming, and unpretentiously profound. It was first published in 1962 in Virginia. And uh, the author, a woman named Sarah Patton Boyle, who was born in 1906 in Charlottesville, Virginia. She was brought up in genteel poverty, uh, but belonged to one of Virginia's most distinguished families. In fact, General Patton uh, was related to Sarah Patton Boyle. I think they were cousins. And and, and Sarah Patton Boyle uh, unquestionably accepted segregation and the Jim Crow South growing up. That, 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 that's what she was born into. She never thought anything different about it. Um, well, I, I take that back. When she was 12, she writes about the Southern Code that kicked in when you were 12. Before you were 12, you could hang out with other kids of different races. You you would actually probably spend more time around black adults than white adults if, if, if you uh, had, uh, you know, uh, the help, quote unquote. But when it when you turned 12... You became an adult, and your relationship with, if you were white, the relationship with blacks changed. And if you were black, your your relationship with a 12-year-old white girl all of a sudden changed. She was no longer a little girl when she was 12. She was now your your superior. Um, so this is the world that Sarah Patton Boyle was, was, was born into, and frankly, every other Virginian. And uh, you know, American in the Jim Crow South. And that was what she accepted. She didn't know anything different. She didn't think about anything different. She thought that this was actually a, a, a good way of life because that's what she had been taught and inculcated to believe. There's a uh, an early chapter in this book, her book, by the way, which I, I forgot to mention the name of it. It's called The Desegregated Heart. And the reason why it's called The Desegregated Heart is because uh, in 1950... Sarah Patton Boyle's world changed. There was a a gentleman named Gregory Swanson who sued the state of Virginia in 1950 to attend the University of Virginia Law School. Now, Gregory Swanson was already an attorney. He was already a practicing attorney. But this was a suit with a purpose. There was an unwritten policy that prevented black students from attending UVA Law School. If any of them ever applied, they would be sort of uh, approached one-on-one and uh, uh, said, listen, you know, some variation of, listen, um, what what school up north would you want to go to? And we'll sit you there on scholarship. And, and, And every prospective black student to UVA Law School had accepted that deal until Gregory Swanson came along. Uh, and when they asked him, all right, what school do you want to go to? He said, I want to go to UVA. <laughs> and he was prepared to sue to do it. So Sarah Patton Boyle lived in Charlottesville, Virginia, where the University of Virginia is. Her husband was a theater professor at UVA. Uh, and, and Sarah Patton Boyle was a part of the Charlottesville community. She had been born on a farm outside of Charlottesville. She had lived there her entire life. So when this became the talk of the town, that Gregory Swanson was getting ready to 
uh, to to uh, to sue to attend UVA law school. Sarah Patton Boyle started quizzing some of her friends, uh, a lot of faculty wives and, and people within the community, and, and she was asking, you know, okay, well, what do you think about this? What do you, you know? What do you think about the idea of a Negro uh, attending law school? And there were publicly uh, already at that point, um, uh, you know, uh, calls for um, any type of uh, situation that could block Swanson from attending, uh, whether it was, you know, provost making these uh, comments, board of uh, trustees, the press, certainly. Um, but, but Sarah Patton Boyle found that among her friends, people were okay with it, uh, despite those public protests. Boyle said 90% of the women in her social circle were, were, were okay with Gregory Swanson attending UVA Law School. There were informal polls done of the student body at UVA that uh, showed that there was a, a great deal of support for this as well. And, and Sarah Patton Boyle was very enthusiastic about this. She felt like her eyes had been opened here to uh, discrimination and to segregation. And so she, 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 she wrote uh, Gregory Swanson a letter and uh, encouraged him uh, to uh, to attend UVA. Uh, she said that uh, she felt the press gave no hint uh, that Swanson's admission might be welcome to any of us or that Virginians except Negroes might rejoice in the justice of his winning his suit. So, so that's what compelled Sarah Patton Boyle to write Gregory Swanson uh, and ultimately started her down a path of speaking out uh, against segregation very early on in the civil rights process. When the New Yorker uh, said that this was a, a unpretentiously profound book, uh, I think they actually nailed it. Because this, the, the, the Desegregated Heart really is a profound book. Uh, and, it, and as I was reading this, I, was, I just kept asking myself, okay, why am I not, why did nobody ever, why is this not taught in, in Virginia high schools? Why are kids not reading this in history? Because the way she describes just the day-to-day of the segregated society. Let me see if I can find something for you. Um, Okay, here you go. Uh, This was in a chapter called uh, The Southern Never Never Land. And it's about the differences between whites and blacks in terms of etiquette. Uh, She says it was quite proper, I learned, this is she learned this, you know, when when she became twelve, and all of a sudden her relationship with uh, Black Virginians changed irrevocably. She said it was quite proper. I learned to talk for hours with Negroes, provided that you were adroit in preserving the right balance in your relationship, and knew how to keep each of you in your appointed roles. These roles called for you always talking a little down, and they're talking a little up. Keeping this balance wasn't easy, however, and if you slipped into an equality relationship, even momentarily, you must realize that you had gravely degraded yourself and undoubtedly forfeited the respect of your Negro companions. That's right. You were, if you actually treated your black companion as an equal, uh, not, it, was, it was a huge faux pas. Not only had you degraded yourself, but, 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 but your black friend or, or, well, wouldn't be your friend, but the black person you were talking to would have felt degraded by your momentary equality. That's what, that's what the Southern Code taught at the time, that, that this was a symbiotic relationship. And it wasn't just that, you know, white people uh, liked the Jim Crow laws. 
black people like the Jim Crow laws, too, or at least according to the, <laughs> the white people. Uh, she said uh, it was proper, indeed it was Southern, to be friendly and chatty with all Negroes, provided you watched the emotional balance and instantly withdrew into a more formal attitude if a note of equality kept in. There were many rules to help one balance on this tightrope, some given verbally, some by implication. I learned, she writes, that when visiting a Negro friend, quote-unquote, in her shack, if she offered food, it was proper to accept it. Also proper, indeed courteous, to sit at her table with her and eat, though you were especially pleased with her nicety of feeling, if she did not sit down with you, even when invited, but waited on you instead. That's right. Yeah. That was supposed to make you feel really good. However, she was not considered uppity if she chose to sit with you at her own table because in going to see her, you voluntarily made her your hostess. Her house was her castle. If she chose to wait on you instead of sitting with you, it was courtesy beyond the call of strict duty. But in your home, in your home, she was expected to eat in the kitchen. Even if the two of you were alone in the house, and even if she were not an employee, but a quote-unquote friend, calling perhaps to bring you a small birthday gift. You never, never sat at table with a Negro in your own dining room. That was one aspect of the the Southern Code. She said drinking etiquette was different from eating etiquette. If you were a man, you could offer a Negro a drink of whiskey if you were having one when he arrived, though he must drink his standing. Has to drink it standing. Can't sit down. It would, on the other hand, be uppity of him to offer you one in like circumstances. So if you showed up at a Negro's home, he shouldn't offer you a drink. He must hastily put the bottle out of sight upon your arrival, claiming he was just partaking because of a sore throat or a snake bite. And you could then, if you wish, say, why don't you offer me one, Jim? And he would grin from ear to ear at your proffer of fellowship and saying, yes, sir, would fetch the bottle forth. And you could then, if you wished, sit down with him. No white man, she says, was ever expected to eat in the kitchen, for this would classify him with Negroes. Regardless of his station or the condition of his clothes, perhaps filthy or sweaty, if there was occasion to invite him to eat, he was asked into the dining room. If he smelled of accumulated perspiration, the family was expected to suffer it for courtesy's sake. If a Negro college president, immaculately attired, and an ignorant poor white, unwashed and in rags, had arrived at our house near dinner time, both would have been invited to share our food. But... She says the poor white would have been brought to table with the family. And the college president would have been served separately on the back porch. Or, if my father was home, on the front porch or in the living room, we would have felt that sufficient recognition was given to his position by not assigning him to the kitchen. As a further courtesy, my father, mother, or some other adult member of my family would have sat with him while he ate, probably eating his or her own dinner later, but possibly even joining him with a tray. So this was the world that Sarah Patton Boyle was born into. This is the world that um, Ralph Northam, his parents would have been born into uh, this society. It's the same society that my mom actually was born into in Oklahoma. But Sarah Patton Boyle rebelled against this. There was something that sparked her conscious when Gregory Swanson decided to, uh, to attend the University of Virginia Law School. It had actually started uh, a little bit earlier before. She had been talking to a couple of Jewish students at UVA, and uh, one of them uh, mentioned that uh, he wanted to get into medical school, but there was no way that he was going to get into UVA medical school because there were already too many Jewish students, and 
Sarah Patton Boyle couldn't understand why that would make a difference and then started thinking. And once she realized, oh, oh, the, the, the Jews are being discriminated against, then all of a sudden there was that little chink in the armor and she started thinking, well, why is all of this not discrimination? And so she was very hopeful uh, when Gregory Swanson decided he wanted to attend the, the law school and, and she started talking about this with her friends. She was hopeful because people were, were, were accepting of this. The vast majority of them were accepting of this. She felt like this were, was the start of a, uh, of, of a new age. Uh, and she really felt like, like Virginia was on the precipice of, of turning a corner and just getting rid of these, these old and outdated attitudes. And so she wrote Gregory Swanson a letter. She said, Dear Mr. Swanson, she also uh, wrote later that it made her feel queer and proud to use the term Mr. She said it was the first time I'd ever addressed a Negro as Mr. Something old and rigid had given way. Sarah Patton Boyle was uh, 44 years old when she wrote that letter. She said, I feel impelled to speak for the many Southerners who are silently on your side. I speak as a Virginian for the many Virginians who will be happier if you are admitted to the university and will be humiliated if you are not. Many more than you probably believe sincerely want you to come and will be consistently glad you are here. She continued, even some of those who are not glad will be filled with respect for your willingness to bear and to suffer so that those who follow you will be less burdened and freer from pain. She was uh, very pleased with this letter. She actually wanted to send a copy to the Richmond Times-Dispatch, the state's largest newspaper, and she talked to some of her friends about this, some of the same friends who were, you know, said they were, they were, they were, they were fine with uh, Gregory Swanson attending school. They were not fine with her sending that letter. One friend said the papers uh, would be deluged with letters denying what you say, and the net result would be the opposite of what you intend. Uh, another, according to Boyle, expressed an opinion which she later learned was a rhythmic refrain throughout the South. Quote, emotion runs too high on this subject. The less said about it, the better. Yeah, that was a, uh, that was a, that was a common cop-out, right? Oh, we can't, we shouldn't talk about this. People just get too upset about it. So let's just, let's just not talk about it. So Sarah Patton Boyle did not send that letter to the Richmond Times-Dispatch. She, um... She did keep corresponding with uh, Gregory Swanson, and the more she talked to him, um, the less enthusiastic he seemed to be uh, towards her, because while Sarah Patton Boyle was extraordinarily uh, excited about this new direction that her life was taking, um, the, the gigantic steps she thought she was making, and the guy, let me take that back, the gigantic steps that she was making to her seem to be baby steps to individuals like Gregory Swanson, uh, who uh, once said, um, while her heart may be in the right place, she possesses strands of paternalism, which I utterly deplore. As time went on, Gregory Swanson, by the way, lasted a year at University of Virginia Law School before he had transferred out. Uh, Sarah Patton Boyle um, continued her, her, her quest uh, for equality. And as a matter of fact, she um, ended up uh, uh, talking to the editor of a black newspaper in Charlottesville. 
and had a relationship with him that uh, continued for many, many years. Uh, T.J. Sellers, who was the editor of the uh, Tribune there in uh, Charlottesville, uh, was that uh, gentleman's name, and uh, he he helped to um, kind of explain to her. Okay, so you know your your heart's in the right place, but uh, but 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 here's you know why you're still rankling people so much. And they had an honest back and forth. Uh, later, Sarah Patton Boyle realized that was the first time that she actually treated a a a, a black man as an equal, uh, and it was actually annoyance. Uh, with him that made her forget the uh, the Southern Code, and she just talked to him, uh, you know, one human being to another uh, in, in her reply. And okay, well, I don't understand this, and and it was a it was a lengthy conversation, one that stretched on for years. Um, uh, she wrote uh, as they were having this discussion. She said it took me perhaps a half decade uh, to learn that one of the blind spots of most Negroes is their failure to realize that small overtures from whites have a large significance. Few have patience with a white at the half mark of conversion. They want total acceptance or none. Acceptance with reservation seems to them more insulting than flat, honest rejection. She says, I now realize that this feeling inevitably takes possession of one in the bitter struggle for equality. Indeed, she wrote, I share it. And yet I wonder how we can expect total acceptance it's a step full grown from the womb of prejudice with no embryo or infancy or childhood stages. It is only with a sad heart that I can guess how many potential liberals must have been stampeded back into the prison of their conservatism by confrontation with experiences similar to mine. There, there is um, one thing that I, I that, that did bug me uh, as I was reading this, and that is the, uh, the the reference to the segregationists as conservatives. In one sense, yes, they were, of course, trying to conserve the uh, traditional. Uh, uh, Southern culture, uh, as well as the Jim Crow laws that had existed since uh, shortly after the Civil War, but uh, that that doesn't make you a a small c conservative. Um, as a matter of fact, there was a more ancient conservative tradition that the uh, quote unquote liberals uh, were were trying to advance, and that would be those ideals of the. Founding fathers, the uh, the words of Thomas Jefferson uh, in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. All men today, all humankind, I suppose, would be the uh, the words to use. Now, to try to uh, uh, live up to or to uh, put those ideals in place, I would argue is not progressive. Uh, I would argue that that is actually a a very conservative position. Um, and it has to be said, we'll, we'll get into this in just a little bit, that today, Sarah Patton Boyle, I don't know where she would easily fit on the political spectrum. Uh, she, she may have fit very comfortably on the left in Virginia in the 1950s. I don't think that she would fit very comfortably on the left today. And I don't know, I think she'd feel more at home on the right, but I, I, I don't know that for certain. Um, Sarah Patton Boyle fought the good fight for uh, uh, a number of years and uh, continued to suffer disappointment. Her, her, her optimism that Virginia was, was ready uh, to, uh, to throw off the, uh, the, the, the shackles of the Jim Crow society and, and that Virginians were ready to actually embrace a future where uh, people were 
going to be equal. And that was the, the main goal, was not to maintain this segregated society, but to, to achieve uh, equality and to ensure that uh, uh, those men uh, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights uh, were seen as equal in the eyes of the law. But as I said, she was increasingly disappointed. Uh, 1954, you have the uh, Brown versus Board of Education decision, uh, a case that was uh, primarily driven not just by uh, the uh, case out of Topeka, Kansas, uh, but also a case out of Prince Edward County, Virginia, where Farmville, Virginia is located. Uh, a woman named, Bar- not even a woman, a girl named Barbara Johns, who was 15, uh, let a walkout at the Moton High School, that was the all-black high school, uh, protesting the conditions uh, uh, there. And eventually that led to a, a series of lawsuits filed by dozens of parents uh, arguing that their children were not being provided with the equal uh, education that uh, separate but equal was supposed to provide for uh, all children there in the Commonwealth. This case goes up to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court uh, strikes down segregation uh, and did not provide a, a, a deadline uh, for schools to be integrated. States were, uh, were going to be left up to their own devices to, uh, to try to do this as quickly as possible. Uh, in Virginia, uh, it did not go that way. Uh, you started to have politicians speak out, arguing in favor of um, a movement called Massive Resistance which closed public schools rather than integrate. Uh, in 1956, uh, Sarah Patton Boyle had a cross burned on her front lawn. That was the uh, same year that two-thirds of voters in Virginia approved changes to the state constitution to allow for tuition vouchers. Now, today, uh, tuition vouchers are, can be used to uh, remove kids from failing schools, and to to place them in schools where they can actually get an education. In Virginia, in 1956, the idea of tuition vouchers was so that white parents could send their white kids to all white private schools because Brown versus Board of Education did not uh, integrate private schools, just just uh, just public schools. And so uh, this was a way for the state to uh, provide white kids with an opportunity to continue to go to all white schools. This was, again, part of that plan of, of massive resistance. Um, that vote in 1956 uh, revealed that uh, Sarah Patton Boyle's faith in a smooth transition to a desegregated society uh, was simply a lie. And, and Sarah Boyle believed that if, if, if courageous leaders had spoken up at the time, she really does think that something could have turned out differently. Uh, but because those voices were so few and far between, uh, the voices of the bigots and the voices of those who wanted to maintain uh, this segregated society uh, and those who, again, wanted to keep uh, pushing and pushing back against any recognition of equality, uh, those voices held sway. By the late 1950s, Sarah Patton Boyle was told by both black and uh, white civil rights activists, there were a few more at that time by the late 1950s, that, that she was basically damaged goods, uh, that she was so controversial, she had been so outspoken for so long, that anytime she opened up her mouth, uh, the people who she was trying to reach immediately shut down. They, they, they didn't want to hear what she had to say, so they immediately tuned her out. 
and and she kind of interpreted that as you know everything I've been working for then I've I've failed at and she really reached this point um it was it was kind of interesting so so Charlottesville Virginia was one of those towns that practiced massive resistance and they did not integrate the schools uh, at least not right away uh, in 1959 they uh, they opened up uh, uh, schools on a on a limited integrated basis and began uh, that that process and and when that happened in Charlottesville, Sarah Patton Boyle said that um, you know the friends that have stopped talking to her over the years because of her civil rights activism the uh, the, the faculty wives who have stopped inviting her to, to to parties and to hang out she was no longer a social pariah which she had definitely become uh, during the years of her civil rights activism. When Charlottesville schools started to integrate, now she was sort of brought back into the fold, and she found that people were coming up to her and telling her, oh, I'm so glad that you kept fighting. Thank you for what you were doing, when they hadn't done a damn thing. And that not only broke Sarah Patton Boyle's heart, but it broke her spirit. She says that uh, she did not feel relief upon being welcomed back into those social circles. She felt emptiness. She felt spiritually bankrupt. And this is why the desegregated heart is not taught in Virginia public schools, even though it would provide an incredible window into a segregated, into the segregated society of the 1950s. The reason why this remarkable book is not taught in public schools is because Sarah Patton Boyle found God. She found God. She actually made a conscious decision, she said, to believe in God because she could not believe in anything or in anyone else. And this is why I say that Sarah Patton Boyle doesn't fit comfortably on the left today. Because having read The Desegregated Heart, I cannot imagine uh, Sarah Patton Boyle uh, cheering Ralph Northam on or the uh, state senator, uh, or is it a delegate, uh, uh, I think delegate Tran, no, state senator Tran, um, who had authored uh, this uh, third trimester abortion bill. I, I can't see her at home with those positions given her embrace of God. As um, Jennifer Rittenhouse wrote in the uh, introduction to the 2001 reissue of The Desegregated Heart, her step-by-step account of her religious reawakening makes for unfamiliar and even uncomfortable reading for secular audiences in the post-civil rights era. Yet, Boyle considered this the most important story she had to tell. As she writes in the preface, her primary purpose is to share my discovery that to have love and peace we must love in the last extremity we can love only by means unfamiliar to most of us. And that was ultimately Sarah Patton Boyle's conclusion, that you had to love, that that was, that was what was going to change things, that was what was going to make the difference, was simply learning to love. And she felt like, as the uh, 1950s turned into the 1960s, that that, that lesson was being lost, that... Um, for every effort there was towards a, 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 not even a reconciliation, but a recognition 
uh, of equality so that a reconciliation might take place. Uh, you obviously had those uh, folks again getting angrier and angrier, trying to uh, keep uh, the, uh, the the segregated society in place in Prince Edward County. Public schools were shut down for five years. Five years. You had little black kids going to school in the basement of churches. You had little white kids either not going to school at all or uh, going to uh, one of the, uh, the the few private schools that had opened up in the area. But for five years. From 1960 to 1965, there was no public education in Prince Edward County, Virginia. And Sarah Patton Boyle saw, again, that those roadblocks getting in the way of a, uh, of a truly just society. And to her, the answer wasn't, uh, you know, big campaigns. It wasn't, uh, you know, marches or protests. It wasn't certainly wasn't what you saw from the, uh, the, the segregationists. Uh, the only real way to change society, Sarah Patton Boyle believed, was to change individual hearts. And, and those individual hearts had to be changed by, uh, in her belief, finding God. And in her uh, ultimate uh, quest for God and, and trying to define God, she defined God as love. And that meant to be God-like, to be Christ-like, uh, to try to get closer to God, you had to, you had to love. You had to love your enemies. You had to love your neighbor. But you had to love in a time of increasing hostility and hate. Think about this. I mean, she's making this statement and this argument in 1962, by 1965, 1966, you're looking at, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 riots every summer on the streets of major metropolitan areas. You're looking at a rise in violent crime that wouldn't stop until the early 1990s. Once again, uh, Sarah Patton Boyle, despite her, her best efforts, uh, did not change the world for the better. But that doesn't mean that she was wrong. Because she wasn't wrong. I think she's absolutely right. And I think it's a, honestly, I think it's a very Glenn Beckian message uh, to be found in the desegregated heart. It really is. It is fascinating history. Uh, it is, it's painful uh, to read at times. It is very tough to read at times. I mean, I, and this is one of the things that I think about, you know, so my mom was born in 1934 in Oklahoma. Uh, and uh, grew up in the segregated society, lived there until she moved to Rhode Island in uh, the early 1960s with my father. Um, and that was where she actually first had a friendship with a person outside of her race. And she had her own eye-opening experience. And, and I know that my mom struggled throughout her life. Um, she believed in her heart in the equality of man, but sometimes her head and her past and her experience uh, kind of got in the way of, of what she really believed. When I told my mom, for instance, that I was uh, getting married, uh, I, I was 22 at the time, and she was not happy. I told her that uh, the woman I was going to marry was nine years older than, uh, uh, than I was, and she was really not happy. And when I told my mom that uh, the woman I was going to marry was nine years older than me and had two kids from a previous marriage. Uh, she flipped out when I explained that they were biracial. 
she told me, you're not going to be allowed to go to the family reunion anymore. And I don't think that was her, but I think she was worried about what some of my, uh, my, my, my you know, extended family might say. And I said, that's fine. That's okay. I, I guess you'll just have to miss me. But here's the thing. She knew that those feelings that she struggled with, she, she knew that they were wrong. And she never passed those feelings on to her kids. Never. Uh, in fact, the one thing that I, I realized growing up now is that there was a generation, I was born in 1974, and I think that generation that was born in the uh, years after Martin Luther King's death and maybe even after uh, you know white flight and the busing movement, but there was a generation, my generation came of age uh, with the words of Martin Luther King ringing in our ears. Martin Luther King's dream was supposed to be our reality. And I think in many ways it was. The, the thing that I start to realize now, though, or, or have started to realize a few years ago, is that uh, the reason why I think we, my generation, did not carry that baggage, or many of us did not uh, carry that baggage, is because we weren't, that baggage wasn't placed on us. Not all of us, anyway. Uh, and so we were a blank slate. We may have been ignorant of the past when we should have been educated. But that ignorance, I think, also gave us an innocence that allowed us to approach relationships with one another in a way that I, I don't even, I, I don't think we did in the 50s. And certainly not with the bags that many adults bring to uh, uh, you know, race relations today, but I, I wonder again if there's sort of a almost a boomerang effect that uh, you know in the '50s and the '60s you you had that baggage, maybe even in the '70s, uh, '80s, '90s you did not have as much of that baggage. 2000s, 2010s, the the baggage is back, and now we're getting into a generation where again it's just gee, many Christmas. Why are we at each other's throats all the time? when the whole point is to get along. And I see that with uh, my kids' generation. I've got an 18-year-old who graduated high school last year. I've got 13-year-old twins. And that's very much the dynamic. The, the dynamic between uh, with, with, with my kids and their friends is way different than the dynamic I see play out uh, on Twitter or social media uh, between adults who are both black and white. I do wish that this book was more widely read uh, and perhaps even more widely available. Um, but again, the, the overtly religious message in the last third of the book, it didn't turn me off. Uh, in fact, I found it very inspiring. But I, I, I think in this increasingly secular society, uh, it's certainly not going to, this is not going to be, uh, you know, assigned reading in high schools or, or middle schools because of the overly religious message, uh, which is, again, it's a, it's a real shame because I learned a lot of history from this book. But I learned more than just history. Again, the, uh, what did the New, York, uh, the New Yorker uh, describe this book? Unpretentiously profound. Uh, this is, in fact, uh, a, a, an un unpretentiously profound book, The Desegregated Heart. And uh, if you can find a used copy somewhere, uh, it is well worth uh, a read. I found it incredibly gripping. 
I do have an extra copy, actually. Maybe I will uh, send one to uh, Governor Ralph Northam. As for the governor, I... I, I thought that he would step down over the weekend. Uh, he has not to date, and I don't know what will happen with uh, his political future. But I was less than impressed with his uh, press conference and his uh, contradictory statements in the first, oh, 24 to 36 hours uh, of this scandal breaking. Um, how he responded, the, uh, the the fact that he said one thing one day and something else entirely the next does not instill me with confidence, nor does it apparently instill uh, many of his colleagues uh, with, uh, with confidence. But here's the thing. I don't think, I, I, I do believe in redemption. I do. And I do believe in grace. And I do worry that we are heading towards this. We're not even heading towards. We are right now knee deep and we're wading deeper uh, into these murky waters where there is no redemption and there is no grace. And anything that you did, no matter how distant in your past, uh, can and will be used against you in the court of public opinion. And uh, once you have been convicted, there is no turning back. There is, uh, there is no way to, uh, to, to regain your life. And that, I think, is an unhealthy way uh, for a society to behave. And yet a free society may make unhealthy choices all the time. Uh, it is a conundrum. And I don't pretend to have all the answers. Just a list of books that might help us get a little bit further in finding those answers. And this week, The Desegregated Heart by Sarah Patton Boyle, a Virginian stand in time of transition. All right, until we talk again, I'm going to try to find something a little bit lighter to talk about next time. We started out by talking about the beats. I don't know what exactly the, the lighter past tense current events will be a lot of it i guess is dictated by the current events themselves but uh i appreciate you listening thank you so much be safe have fun live a little learn a lot and we'll talk to you soon with more 40 acres and a fool from blaze podcast network 40 acres and a fool with cam edwards on the blaze radio network